Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here with you. Uh, it's going to be hard to live up to that hype that Ben gave, you know, so, man, I think he, what he wants to do is just put the pressure on. That's what he wants to do, but anyway, it is so good. I want you to know I, I do come here with the prayers and the blessings from all the family of churches, um, being around a lot of the different campuses. I get a chance to train in lots of different environments, and I want you to know there's a whole family of churches that is cheering you on and believing for God's best here in Marietta through, through this church family. Um, so I, I get the opportunity and privilege to bring that with me. I hope you'll just receive that today as well. Um, let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. When's the last time you found yourself in a desperate situation? The kind of situation where it looked like hope had left the building. The kind of situation where it felt like hope had kind of crawled out a window about five minutes ago. The kind of situation where all you could do was just raise your hands up and say, I need help. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go and do a camp for some junior high and high school students. I get a chance to speak around, do lots of different camps and conferences, but this is a little bit of a different camp or conference because most of the time when I'm doing this stuff, we go to resorts or college campuses, but this was what they called an extreme camp. This is where they were going to ask us to do things that no human being should actually do. So for instance, the first day that I was there, they said, Dave, what we want you to do is jump into a raft with all of these junior high boys. It's going to be class four and five rapids. It'll be fun. And so I remember I'm going down these four and five rapids. My life is literally in the hands of a sixth grader. I'm thinking, this is not good. This is not good. The, the second day, they, they, they said, Dave, here's what we need you to do today. We want you to wrap a rope around your waist and jump off a mountain. It's called rappelling. It'll be amazing. And again, that same sixth grade boy is belaying me, you know, by, down thinking, this, this, I mean, literally, my life is in the hands of a sixth grader. But I'll never forget the last day that we were there when they said, Dave, today we're going to do a little thing called caving or spelunking to the experts. Let's just say I still call it caving. Now, I got to tell you, before I went caving this day, I, I thought that caving would be that we'd go take a bus ride, we would put our lights on, our helmets on, we would turn our lights off and maybe go into a cave and share a couple ghost stories and that would be what caving is. Can I tell you, that is not what caving is. Caving is a claustrophobic's worst nightmare. I didn't know I was claustrophobic until I got into the cave that day. Because what they began to do when we got in there, they began to make us go on these things called crawls. Now when I talk about a crawl, I'm not talking about the cave gets a little bit narrow and you gotta bend your back and get down. I'm talking about literally the first crawl that we went on was a canyon crawl and it would be like crawling like from here to the back of the sanctuary underneath these pews. Literally, you've got your helmet on, you lift up, you hit rock, you put your arm to the side, you hit rock, you go to the left, you hit rock, you've got someone's feet in your face and someone behind you, there's nowhere to go, you can't turn around. And I remember getting through that first crawl and I, I'm having this experience that, that I'm going to have a nervous breakdown here in the cave. And the worst part wasn't the crawl there because you didn't know how far it was. The worst part was the way back where you did know how far it was. And you're thinking, if this sixth grader doesn't get moving in front of me, I'm going to die here in this cave. 
The second crawl they took us on was called the birth canal. <laughs> Can I just tell you, if anyone ever asks you if you want to go down the birth canal, don't go. You've been born once. If you're a Christian, you've been born again. There's no reason to be born three times in your life. Literally, this crawl was so tight, you had to go sideways, and you had, you know, the cave hitting you on your chest and the cave hitting you on your back. The, the cave was so tight, literally the worship leader I was with lost his pants in that crawl. That made for a whole other situation, but I'll never forget this last crawl they took us on. It's called the whisper crawl, because on this crawl, what they said is everyone's going to turn their lights off. And now on this crawl, the only way you can move forward is to kind of hold on to the person in front of you and you just crawl and then, you know, let the person behind you hold on to them. I remember they, they, we got through that first crawl and I'm like draped on the, on the sixth grader in front of me, you know, because I don't want to, to be left behind. And I remember at the end of this crawl, um, they, they, they said, on the way back, here's what we're going to do. Everyone else can talk because you weren't allowed to talk on this crawl, but Dave, you can't talk, and we're still going to have our lights off, and, and you just got to hold on to the person in front of you. And I remember getting a little separated from the pack where I could hear the conversation that was going, and no one was looking out for me because I was the camp pastor. You'd think there'd be like a little ethical responsibility, but no, they were just going on, you know, and, 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 and before you know it, I, I just feel the separation from the pack, and the conversation's getting further and further away, and now I'm feeling water in the bottom of the cave, and I've got the kind of mind that starts asking, where'd that water come from, and what if more of that water starts coming out, and before you know it, the, the people are getting further and further away, and there came that moment there came that moment where I just decided I, had to, I was left the decision, am I going to turn my light on and just say I need help? But, but to be honest, I was a little embarrassed because there are, there are junior high girls that are doing this well. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, I'm a grown man. I should be able to handle this. But there came that moment of desperation where it was like, you know what? I don't care whether I get emails for junior high girls for the rest of my life talking about what a wimp Dave was in the cave. There came a moment of desperation where I said, you know what? i got to turn my light on. i just got to let someone know I'm back here. I need help. This morning, the psalm that we're going to turn to it is a psalm that reminds us of those kinds of moments in our lives. Moments when we look up to God in the middle, sometimes of situations that we've made for ourselves, sometimes the brokenness that's chosen us. And those moments where you can't manage it, you can't manipulate it, you can't leverage anymore, that you just have to say, God, I'm back here and I need help. We've been working through the last few weeks these Psalms of Ascent. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 124 this morning. You can go ahead and turn there. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Some guys will put a Bible in your hand. But we mean Psalm 124, as Ben and Mike have begun opening the conversation around what's been called the Psalms of Ascent. They're the Psalms that the people of Israel would sing on their way to worship in Jerusalem for the feasts and the festivals. They're kind of like the soundtrack or the hymnal of music that the people of God would use to ready their hearts. 
It's their mixtape, so to speak. It, it, you know, that kind of dates me a lot. It's their, it's their playlist. And like all good music, it's music that brings you back to the day and era in which it was what was written. I mean, for instance, you know, all I have to do is turn on a Cranberries, you know, CD, and I'm back in college. Little boys to men, I'm back in high school, you know. I mean, just the way that music can just bring you back to another time and place. And I love, I mean, Mike gave a powerful message two, two weeks ago. If you weren't here, you need to get, I, I heard it, uh, you know, online. It was absolutely fantastic. The way that he talked about the, the space between the beginning of our journey and the end of our journey. And so much of our discipleship happens on the way and the space between. And, and, and how to be a person of peace in the middle of a world that's at war where there's rumors of war and all kinds of things happening. And Ben talked last week about the, the place of worship and the way that it orients our heart. And now in, in Psalm 124, we again hear the psalmist calling to remind us of the victories that God has come and led in our life in the middle of our desperation. Verse 1 Here's the way the psalmist talks about it. It says, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. But praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We have escaped like a bird out of the fowler snare, and the snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist is inviting Israel with the songs that they would sing on the way to Jerusalem, not just to remember the lament of the condition that they came from, not just simply to begin to orient their hearts and minds toward peace. But, but part of, of what the, the journey would bring out of them was the memories of all of the times where God had delivered them in the past. So we'd sing this song. In the background of this song are moments where God in the Israel's past had parted the waters in the midst of, of Pharaoh's army bearing down on God's people, they come to the Red Sea and, 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 and Moses raises his staff and God parts the sea. There are moments in the Jordan River again where God parts the waters. There are moments for David when he's being surrounded by his enemies where it looks like there are moments when all hope is gone and yet in the midst of that, I love the psalmist picture here, almost like a, like a bird who's incapable of doing anything for itself. And yet God comes in the midst of our vulnerability, in the midst of our desperation, in the midst of us unbeing able to fight for ourselves. And he fights for us. Some of you can even think back in your own journey with God to those moments of desperation, those moments where you had no ability to manage or manipulate or leverage, where the only thing you could do was surrender. 
my question tonight, or I guess this morning, is this. How do you become the kind of person that God can fight for and it be a good thing? So standing behind Psalm 124 is really one story that comes from the most significant place in which Israel would find their identity. See, the call here of Psalm 124 is not just a call to remember God has won Israel's victory on his behalf. But if you read closely between the lines, the real call is also to remember who they would be if God had not intervened. Who they would be without God, so to speak. Who they were without God. And then to remember who they are because of God. And and there's no greater place for Israel to remember that than in the story of a guy named Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. So turn over to Genesis chapter 32 because this is one of the stories that stands behind Psalm chapter 124. We're asking the question, what does it mean or what does it look like to be the kind of person that God can fight for? And Genesis chapter 32 brings us into a disturbing little passage where a guy named Jacob meets God and God places his hands on Jacob. Martin Luther called this the most disturbing story in all the Bible. If you remember just a little bit from the Bible story, you remember there's been a guy named Abraham that God has called out and said, I want to use you and your family to be a blessing among the earth. He said, I'm going to multiply your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And Abram has one child of promise named Isaac. And Isaac marries Rebekah. And Isaac and Rebekah have two children. They're twin boys. One is a guy named Esau. He comes out first. His name means Harry. He's like the crocodile hunter, Ty Pennington, and Bill Dance all in one. I mean, he can hunt, he can fish, he can build things. He's a man's man kind of guy. And then there's Jacob. Now, Jacob sometimes gets the play that he's kind of the mama's boy. What, what Jacob means, actually, is heel catcher or a deceiver. He's one who's always grabbing at heels, and he's, he's, a, he's a clean-shaven guy. I got to tell you, I don't think of Jacob as a mama's boy. I think of Jacob as a James Bond kind of character, always, always, always smoothly shaven, but he's the kind of guy who knows what he wants and knows how to get it. And the story of Jacob's life is that he is a heel catcher. He's been grabbing at heels all of his life. He's a deceiver. He deceives his brother first out of the birthright, then his dad out of the blessing. So much so that when Esau comes home after Jacob has tricked his dad out of the blessing that was supposed to be for Esau, Esau looks at Jacob and says, you better get out of here because when dad dies, I'm going to kill you. He goes down to his uncle Laban's house. You find that 
this kind of trickster thing, this heel catcher thing runs in his family as Laban tricks him into marrying his oldest daughter when he wants to marry his youngest daughter and he tricks him into working for 14 years instead of seven years. But Jacob's always the kind of guy who never wants someone else to have the last laugh. So before you know it, um, he's asked in return for his service for all the speckled and striped sheep and cattle. He does this thing with the mating ritual. It's a really weird story if you want to read a really weird story there in Genesis 28 and 29 and 30 where they do some things while the calves are mating and all of a sudden all the calves are are striped and, and speckled. So he's tricked now Laban out of all of his livestock. He's got Laban's girls. He's got all Laban's stuff. And just before Genesis chapter 32, Jacob's ridden off with all of that. And Laban catches up to him and says, I'm drawing a line in the sand. Don't come past here or we're going to be at war. So here in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob is caught in the space between. He's caught between Esau on one side and Laban on the other side. He's caught between his past and his future. And in this moment, he sends his wives and livestock and friends to the other side of the Jabbok. And he's alone in the stillness and the silence when all of a sudden God enters his story. Verse 22 of Genesis chapter 32, here's the way the story reads. It says, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. So the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Do you get the picture here? Here, Jacob is caught between his past and his future. Laban's on one side, Esau's on the other side. He sent his, his, his wives and livestock and servants across the Jabbok, and now he is here, probably almost as a decoy. He's still managing and manipulating. He's got everyone over here, and in case anyone attacks, he makes sure he's on the other side of the river. And he's sitting there in the midst of the silence, when all of a sudden, God jumps into Jacob's life. Now you got to imagine, as Jacob is here, probably at first, he doesn't know it's God. Is it Laban come back to gang up on him? Is it Esau who's heard he's back in town? He doesn't know. All he knows is he's in a wrestling match and there's someone putting his hands on him and they begin to wrestle. Now, the story here 
if you have a little bit of imagination, reads like one of the old wrestling narratives that you used to watch on television. I mean, long before like the WWE, you know, when we had the WCW and the WWF where, where there were two types of wrestlers. Now we live in a day where everyone's a star, but there used to be a day when there was wrestling, when it was real. You know what I'm talking about. When there was real wrestling and there, there was, you know, the superstars and then there's the ham and eggers. And you can always tell the difference between the two because the superstars always had like a code name, like the, the macho man, Randy Savage. Or, you know, Hulk Hogan or the nature boy, Ric Flair. If ever your name was just your name, you knew you were going in to get beat that day, right? But if you've ever watched wrestling, you know that the way the narrative works is that at first it's like Hulk Hogan is fighting Dave Rhodes. You know, if ever your name is just Dave Rhodes, if ever it's just your name, you know you're in trouble. But if you watch the narrative for a while, Dave Rhodes would be like body slamming Hulk Hogan. Dave Rhodes would be like clotheslining the macho man Randy Savage. But then there would be that moment in every wrestling match, you know, where Hulk Hogan would start doing something like this, where the nature boy would start going, woo, you know, or, 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 or when the, the rock would start warming up the people's elbow. There'd be that moment, right? There's that moment where, where the match turns, and in this, this wrestling match, for a while, it looks like Jacob's got the upper hand with God. But then there's that moment where God does his move. It's not the people's elbow. It's not the figure four. I call it the immobilizer holds, where he touches Jacob's hip, and when he does, it goes out of socket. And in this moment, Jacob realizes, I'm wrestling with someone way out of my league. And he reaches up, and he holds on to God and he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. The, the picture there, if, if you have a dog, I have a couple little dogs, if you ever played with a rope with them and they grab onto the rope and they won't let go, you could pick them up, you know, you can dust the furniture with them, you know, you can. But here is Jacob, he is held on to God and he's saying, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. There's a couple exchanges here that, that I want to call your attention to. I mean, this is not the way we normally picture God, God against us, so to speak. So what's, what, what's happening here? What's happening here? And I want to bring them in, in, in re reverse order of the text to kind of demonstrate what God is doing here. Verse 27 through 30, it says, The man asked him, What's your name? He said, Jacob. He says, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Well, what's happening here, just if you're, if you're taking notes, you might want to think about this. God is showing Jacob that the real struggle of his life is not a struggle with life, with Laban, or with Esau, but that the real struggle of his life is a struggle with God. I mean, all of Jacob's life, he's been maneuvering and leveraging. He's the heel catcher. He's the ladder climber, so to speak. 
If life is about catching at heels because on the ladder, the only way up is to, you know, grab someone's feet and, and, and to bring them down, Jacob is an incredible ladder climber. I mean, you can either just pull people down or the only other way to get the ladder is by kissing someone's feet. Feet, that's what I was going to say, you know, I mean, because you get up here and now it's not just about getting on top of the ladder, it's about staying on top of the ladder and all Jacob's life has been about climbing ladders and manipulating everything around him to get to the top of the ladder. He's the heel catcher. He's got all the outward signs of the blessing. He's got the, 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 the land and the, he's, got, he's got the possessions and he's got the family. He's manipulated the, the outward signs of the blessing in his life, but he's never really been blessed. And so he's climbing up the ladder and he's catching at heels, but all of a sudden he comes in contact with someone who he can't manipulate. And God says, Jacob, I need you to tell me your name. Now, it's not because God doesn't know who Jacob is. He just wants to make sure Jacob knows who Jacob is. And so Jacob says, my name's, they call, they call me the heel catcher. They call me the deceiver. It's a moment where Jacob cannot leverage or maneuver. He can't get out of it. See, sometimes before God can fight for us, he has to fight against us. He has to come into our lives and, and, and bring to our attention who we are or who we would be without him. That God, without you, here's who I am. To be in touch with the inner cesspool of who I am, so to speak, without God. And Jacob has to look up at God and say, they call me the heel catcher. I'm the manipulator. I'm the deceiver. That's what I've been named and that's who I've become. There's another part of the story there, though. Jacob said, please tell me your name. He replied, why, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. See, Jacob's still trying to manage the situation. But here, God is not just showing Jacob that his real struggle is not with life or with Laban or with Esau, it's with him. He's now bringing Jacob to the end of himself. I wonder how many times we, we deflect our struggle with God into all these lesser struggles in our lives. We think that our struggle is with our wife or our husband. We think our struggle is with our kids or our parents. We think our struggle is in this relationship or with our boss. 
And in the midst of those moments, God often interrupts our life and he jumps into our life. In that space between, God comes into our life. And at first, when he puts his hands on us, our life doesn't get better. It gets worse for a season. I wonder how many of us think that if if God would just fix this over here or that over there, then everything would be good. But God said, no, 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 you got to deal with me. I'm not going to just deal with all your stuff. I'm inviting you to deal with me. So much so that I place my hands on you. And here's Jacob. He's still trying to maneuver. He's still trying to say, God, I want to know your name. Why is he doing that? Because in the ancient world, to know someone's name was to have authority and power over them. When God discharges authority and power to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, they're called to name the animals. Naming is a way that you have authority and power over something. It's why the demons are always coming to Jesus and saying, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth. They're trying to establish authority and control over Jesus. And Jesus says, no, no, I know who you are. Legion, get out. So Jacob is is sitting here trying to manage and manipulate God, and God's saying, here's the deal. I'm not going to give you my name right now because you're just trying to manage and maneuver and leverage over me. You know who this is. There's no one else who has the immobilizer hold. So Jacob just continues to reach up to God, and it's in this moment that God says to Jacob, you are are no longer Jacob, but now you are Israel. Israel means one who struggles with God and overcomes. My old African-American preaching professor that taught this white boy how to hoop every once in a while used to say this in regard to this passage. He says, everyone wants to see the face of God, but No one wants to walk with a limp. And so here is is Jacob in this moment, and he's tried to manage and manipulate God, but now God has entered his life, and he's wrenched Jacob's hip for this moment, and he's holding on to God. But it's in this moment that God looks into Jacob's life and says, I know you've been labeled by everyone around you as Jacob, but let me tell you who you are when I look at you. You are no longer Jacob. That's just the labels that everyone else has placed on you. But now you are Israel. Here's who I see you to be. We live in a world where everyone's trying to label us. Everyone's trying to exert power and authority. That's not just a biblical concept, by the way. It's just a life concept. When you're named well, you perform at maximum capacity. When you're labeled, you do less than that. That's why home teams win more than visiting teams. Because when you're speaking under blessing, or when you're, when you're playing under blessing, it's easier to perform at higher cap- capability. When you go into a visiting place and you're playing under cursing, literally, when you have people trying to label you, it's harder to play at maximum capacity. And I remember I, I played soccer in college, so one of the things that we had to do when we were playing visiting teams, we had to learn to tune out the voices of the stands and tune in the voices of our teammates who were trying to speak blessing over us. 
Jacob's lived in a world where he's been labeled a certain way and he's lived into that. But now God says, let me tell you who you are. Let me speak over you the maximum capacity of who you are. You are no longer Jacob, but you are Israel, one who struggles with God and overcomes. It's a name that was so significant an entire nation would take its identity upon themselves. Literally, in their sacrifices, they wouldn't eat the place where the meat is attached to the hip because that was a holy place. The next day, Jacob is limping and walking because of his hip, and he walks by that place. He names it Peniel. Panim is the Hebrew word for face. El is the Hebrew word for God. I saw the face of God there. And here, this strong guy who's been climbing the ladder and manipulating everything, he gets off the ladder and goes on to the elevator. In the ladder, you climb, but in the elevator, you get raised. In the ladder, you look out for yourself, but in the elevator, it's got space for others to be with you. In the ladder, you're making your own music, but in the elevator, there's a soundtrack, so to speak, as the people get in the elevator. And sometimes you go down at first, but you go down because you know you're going to be raised up. I wonder how many of us, like Jacob, are trapped on the ladder, just grabbing at heels, living in a world where we've been labeled, and we're living up to that label, but now God intervenes, and he says, I want you to be the kind of person I can fight for, but before I can fight for you, I've got to fight against you. Tell me who you are, and let me tell you who you are. Sociologists have a theory called the looking glass self that basically says this, you become whatever the most important person in your life thinks you are. And God is looking at Jacob and saying this, I want to be the most important person in your life. I want to share with you who you are. This moment, it looks like Jacob is dying. It looks as if Jacob is getting weak. But actually, he's preparing to live. We, we're, we're here in this fall season. And I can remember um, when I was a little kid. I love the fall. I love the change of seasons and the temperature. But I never really understood, why do the leaves have to fall off the tree? Because my job was to rake the yard. I was thinking, God, you could have done anything. You could have just let the trees change colors and stayed on there. You know, why, why do they have to fall off the trees. It would be a better world, God, if the leaves just stayed on the trees. I wouldn't have to rake the yard or anything like that. But several years ago, my wife used to, her family used to live in upstate New York. We went to upstate New York, and um, they used to have this huge oak tree that was outside their house, and I noticed that it had been split down the middle. I asked her dad what happened. He said, well, snow came before the tree had time to shed its leaves that day or that year. So, so when the snow came, more snow was packed on the tree than it could withstand because it hadn't shed its leaves. And now, instead of just looking like it was dead, basically it had been split down the middle. 
I'm not a plantologist or a botanist, you know, I think it's the official way to say it. I don't know a lot about plants, but I, but I do know this. Part of the reason that trees shed their leaves in winter and it looks like they're dying in that moment. We're going to see that here in the next few months. It looks like they're dying. It looks like there's, there's nothing going on. But in these moments where it looks like the tree is dying, it is really preparing to live. It's weathering winter by shedding its leaves so that, yes, it may look like it's dead, but it's not broken down the middle. It's, it's, it's shedding its leaves to survive winter because on the other side of winter, spring is coming. This is what God does with us sometimes. He brings us through these pruning moments. He brings us through these times, and he asks us to shed our leaves. Richard Foster says it this way, everything God kills, he also resurrects. And it's in these moments of pruning where we shed our leaves where oftentimes we have to look at God and say, this is who I really am that God knows. These are the moments, even though it feels weak and feels dead, this is the place where he's preparing us to live. This is the place, it's in our weakness that Paul would say, I can glory because I found when I am weak, I can be made strong. I'm wondering today if there's anyone who needs to turn their light on. Some of you are here, and the truth is, you, you've been labeled, and you need to be renamed. You came in addicted, but you need to be named free. You came in in despair, but God says, let me tell you who you are. You are hope. You came in in doubt, but God says, no, you are faith. You came in greed, greedy, but God says, no, 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 your name is generosity. You came in lust, but God says, no, your name is love. You came in numbness, but God names you passion. You came in pride, but God calls you humility. You came came with a sense of, of, of talent, but God wants to call you gifted. You came in strength, but God is encouraging you to embrace your weakness. You came with answers, and God is calling you struggle. You came in lost, but God is calling you found. You came in anxious, but God is calling you peace. You came in depressed, but God looks at you and says, I see joy. You came in sin, but God says, I see salvation. And that what has to happen for us to be the kind of people that God can fight for is that we have to allow him to fight against us, to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we could find the beginning of ourselves in him. What's God doing in the space between? He's wooing you maybe into a place where he can put his hands on you and it may get worse before it gets better but it's in those moments that he's changing everything. August 21st of this past year we had this thing called a solar eclipse. I don't know if you got as excited about it as I did, but we ordered our glasses. We were really excited to just watch this once-in-a-lifetime kind of moment. And, you know, we, we, we thought 
Should we go to like Greenville and get into what they called totality? Or should we just hang here? And, and people said, well, this would be 97% here in Atlanta. And I thought 97% is pretty good. You know, maybe we'll just hang out here and not fight the traffic. And so we got our, our glasses on and, you know, I put my glasses on and tried to drive down. To, I, mean, I, would, I don't recommend driving with the eclipse glasses, by the way. They're great to see the eclipse, but not great to see anything else, you know. And so I got my glasses on and we got down to where we were at. We're going to be at the pool in our neighborhood. And I watched the solar eclipse that day. And I got to tell you, I've been disappointed in my life, but it was, it was disappointing. I mean, 97% were here in Atlanta and thinking, you know, it got a little dark. It's like, a, you know, the clouds went in front of the sun, you know, and then, then, then it was over. But, but I heard stories of people who had ventured up to Greenville where they were in totality, and all of a sudden it got pitch black dark, and it was the same experience, Right? But a totally different experience because here I am, I'm in Atlanta hovering around 97%, but there were people who said, no, no, i got to get to 100%. I want to be in the middle of the totality. This is what happens on the way to Jerusalem. You can come into the worship, so to speak, and hang out at 97% where you've allowed God to get 97% of you. You've surrendered 97% of you, and you're hanging around it. But to be honest with you, it's kind of disappointing. And then there's other people come to the same worship service, sing the same songs, hear the same word, and there's movement in their heart. There's something that's happening in their being. There's an experience that is changing them, and it's because they've come into totality with God. See, on the journey to Jerusalem, as we celebrate what God has done, we're also invited to look at God and say, here's who I would be without you, but here's who I am without you. And here's the deal, God. I don't want to just hang out at 97% of totality where some things happen and I see some things, but I'm not really moved down in the core of who I am. God, I'm making the journey to totality with you. I want 100% totality. I want to be shaken. I want to be moved. I want to be formed. I'm inviting you, God. Place your hands on me. Because I want to go to Peniel. I want to see you. Even if that means I'm walking with a limp. Even if it means I feel weak. I want to travel through the valley of the shadow of death with you, God. Because once I've been there with you, what I find is I have nothing left to be afraid of. I invite you, church, to struggle with God on the way. Jerusalem. Don't just stand on the edges hoping for maybe a touch or maybe to touch him. Grab hold of him and let him grab hold of you. Let's go for totality together. Let's let him name us. Let's let him be our most important person. Let's get off the ladder and go to the elevator so that we could stop crying, climbing, and we could start being raised.
This is the core of the gospel. It's what worship calls us to. It's what happens on the way to Jerusalem as a disciple when God enters your life and makes you the kind of person that he can fight for. Let's pray. God, so many times in our lives, we're crying out for you to touch a relationship or touch a situation, to change something, to deliver something. And yet you want to start by touching and changing us. Just be honest, God, there's so many times in my life want to deal with you. I'd rather you deal with my circumstances than you deal with me. And yet as the people of Israel in Psalm 124 and as this story takes its root from Genesis chapter 32, find that for us to be the kind of people you fight for, sometimes you got to fight. you got to begin by fighting against us. So God, we come into worship today saying we want you to put your hands on us. Don't just change our circumstances. Change us. Don't just transform our relationships. Transform us. We come into totality with you today, God. Name us in your name.